Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Here in Europe, we are heavily affected by the virus. And we know that everything that reduces social interaction also reduces the speed of the spread of the virus. Welcome to a special edition of Politico's EU Confidential podcast, focusing on the coronavirus across Europe. It's an incredibly dramatic moment. Emmanuel Macron has just declared that we are at war with the virus and he and Angela Merkel have both announced big curbs on normal life today in the EU's biggest countries. And you heard a moment ago from European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who announced today that the EU's external borders will soon swing shut to non-essential traffic. Now, we know there's a lot about the virus out there already, but we hope to bring you something different. A focus on the people, politics and policies shaping the response to COVID-19 and how all of that impacts on all of us. And we'll offer a pan-European perspective, drawing on our team of more than 70 journalists in the EU and the UK who are specialists in European politics and policy. And we hope to keep you company if you're heeding the advice of many health officials and employers and staying home. Throughout this crisis, we'll aim to do an extra episode each Monday and we'll still do our regular podcast on Thursday. And we're very keen to hear from you. More about how you can get in touch at the end of the podcast. In this edition, we'll talk to our aviation reporter, Saim Saeed, about the unprecedented impact this crisis has caused on the airline industry and what the industry wants from politicians. But first, I snag two of our very busy health reporters to talk us through the latest of what we need to know. So it's hi first to senior health reporter, Sarah Wheaton. Hey there. And also to reporter Gillian Deutsch. Hi, Gillian. Hi, Andrew. So I want to start actually with um, something we didn't even really talk about in advance, but I think it's an issue with the coronavirus, and that's tone. And I wondered if you guys are, are struggling a bit to decide how we talk about this, because, you know, journalists, we tend to have a dark sense of humour, and there's a strangeness about a lot of this that's kind of surreal. Humour can help make light of things, and we like to have an informal tone, you know, here at Politico. So... At the same time, it's obviously a deadly serious thing and, and can have a, a big effect on, on people's health and, and livelihoods. So I just wonder if you thought about that in your writing, you know, you write newsletters every morning, articles, other media appearances. Is that a thing you're struggling with, Sarah? Um, it is. I think in general, writing about health 
in a journalistic context is challenging because the language that public health people want you to use is not usually very interesting or clear language outside of a technical context. And so health professionals would like us to say that elderly people or people with underlying medical conditions or people with comorbidities are at most at risk of coronavirus. The easier journalistic way to say that is the old and the weak are most at risk of dying from coronavirus. And we have to you know, think about how much we want to simplify. Another thing that's that's been a challenge for me and that I've been reflecting on over the course of this is when this was first starting to break out in China and you were hearing a little bit of talking about whether we should have travel restrictions here, the message from public health authorities was don't panic, don't close the borders, don't do anything disproportionate, blah, blah, blah. Well, now we're starting to see, see that public health authorities maybe didn't act fast enough. And while maybe they shouldn't have panicked and the public shouldn't panic, like a little more urgency might have been better. And so I'm reflecting on my role as a reporter. Did I take my cues too much from public health authorities? Maybe, but also I'm not an expert. It's not for me to like freelance and I don't want to be alarmist if it's unnecessary. So that's something I'm still struggling with today. Yeah, I think it's also interesting because an expert we spoke to yesterday or today um, was saying that it's hard for public health officials to to kind of change their tone because just a couple weeks ago they were saying this is basically the flu. And actually I've been walking around the office saying, you know, basically this is two, the flu 2.0. And now obviously we're seeing that that is not necessarily the case. And so it's hard to convince people that they should take more extreme measures too when this is the, the message only a couple weeks ago. Right. It, it does just feel like everything's changed dramatically in the last few weeks. Uh, Sarah, we had you on the regular podcast a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we obviously knew it was a big story then, but at that time, I don't think many of us could have envisaged that it would become this all-enveloping crisis, which is what it's suddenly become. Uh, in terms of public health, can you give us an overview, a sort of state of play? Uh, where are we um, at the moment? Uh, what kind of measures are being taken in Europe, across Europe, and what are individual countries doing right now? Well, European countries right now are taking a whole host of measures, but largely we're seeing countries kind of do uh, take more pro- uh, protectionist measures. You saw that even at the same time that Commission President Ursula von der Leyen was announcing a bunch of different measures from the Commission, such as jointly procuring more medical gear. Um, at the same time, you had the Interior Minister of Germany announcing that they were going to implement Um, border controls in Germany. Um, Spain and Portugal very quickly followed suit. Estonia has done the same. Uh, So you're seeing a lot of, um, you know, even though the EU is calling for more and more solidarity, member states are not necessarily listening to that. Right. And as far as people's daily lives, we're seeing um, bars and restaurants closed, even parks. I think um, just before we came to to record this podcast, there was a there was a clarification that playgrounds in Brussels were going to be closed. So um, we're seeing people just kind of prepare to be stuck in their houses. Schools are closed, so they've got to find entertainment for their kids. People's daily lives are just really being disrupted. Uh, and at the EU level, who, who are the key people? Because one of the things we are seeing is that the EU is a multitude of things, right? It's national governments, it's regional authorities. And then there's also the people based here in Brussels. So for people who don't know the Brussels landscape so well, uh, who are the key players here? The people managing, trying to coordinate the response? What are the the bodies or institutions we might not have heard of who are suddenly kind of in the spotlight? 
Well, some of the main players is you have a number of commissioners who are, are acting on this. Um, for example, you have the internal market commissioner, Thierry Breton, who is um, really pushing against countries that are implementing, or like Germany, uh, that implemented border uh, export bans, excuse me, on personal protective equipment. Um, you have Stella Kirikides, who's really trying to coordinate with different health ministers across She's the She's the health block. commissioner, right? Yes, health commissioner. Um, you also have Lunarchich, who is the um, crisis management commissioner. Um, and he's really been pushing for, for member countries to be doing more and in, in using the mechanisms that currently exist. Um, you also have the ECDC, which is the uh, European agency uh, that tackles infectious diseases. Um, and actually, though, I was talking to some friends about this a few days ago, and they had no idea the ECDC even existed. Um, they thought I was talking about ACDC, the band, every time I brought it up. Um, so people are still very, you know, not really uh, as as clued in to what the, the commission and what Brussels really can do. Yeah, I do think the ECDC uh, does unfortunately have that connotation with the heavy metal <laughs> band, and it may be a while before people think of them before they think of the band. <laughs> Depends on your demographic, I guess. But I have to say one of the more interesting things is that some of the people who are front and centre are not the people you might have expected to be front and centre um, from the new commission anyway. Yeah, I happened to cover Commissioner Lenarchich, uh, his confirmation hearing, he's the crisis management commissioner. But that was a very low profile affair and certainly didn't include anybody asking him about a pandemic across the EU. But yet suddenly we find these people very much in the spotlight and then, of course, most of all, there's Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, herself a, a doctor. Uh, Sarah, what do you make of the way she's been handling things so far? Well, she's come in for some criticism for kind of moving slowly on this. Uh, she is a doctor and her commission came in wanting to kind of push this message that the EU can do more on health. Now, the health issue they wanted to do more on was cancer. And now instead, this pretty simple little bug is completely blowing up their entire agenda. But we've seen von der Leyen kind of move slowly to adjust her script, just as Italy was really starting to go into a major lockdown, they were kind of quarantining the entire um, northern part of Italy. She gave a long press conference that um, was talking about her 100-day agenda, which coronavirus was not supposed to be part of. Um, and she devoted like five minutes to talking about Turkey and migration and only a minute and a half to the coronavirus. And even up until um, as recently as uh, last Thursday, she was planning to go to Greece to talk about migration. It was only um, when the commission got word that the ECDC, which we now know it is, was going to raise the sort of threat level of coronavirus that she finally kind of got the message and canceled her trip. Um, and Jillian, correct me if, if you don't perceive this, but I think we can tell that the commission is taking taking things more seriously now because we are seeing Kirikidis and Lenarchis kind of go into the background, whereas they these sort of lower level commissioners used to be the only people that we saw talking about this. And we are seeing von der Leyen take charge of this message. And the commission at the end of the week also threatened to launch infringement proceedings against Germany for their export ban on personal protective equipment. So you saw the commission actually definitely step in, but they weren't, they, they were definitely taking kind of this line for a while that you know, we're here just to facilitate coordination among member states. And that was the line, solidarity, solidarity, solidarity. Um, but you are seeing them actually kind of crack the whip a bit more. Right. I mean, how much power do they have in this situation? Uh, what are the things in their toolbox and what are they considering doing? 
It's a bit difficult to say right now because we are kind of still in the fog of war, but there are certain mechanisms that they can use, like the civil protection mechanism, which Italy tried to use. Um, essentially, this is when an EU or non-EU country asks the EU for, for assistance for whatever they need. Um, in this case, Italy tried to ask for help in acquiring more face masks. Um, for about two weeks, we saw them get just radio silence um, from EU countries. But uh, Lenar Chichi made a very good point that, you know, we have these mechanisms, but you need buy-in from, from the countries. And Germany did shift and say that they're going to send one million masks to, to Italy this weekend. Um, but you also have joint procurement of personal protective equipment. But, I, I mean, I have to reiterate that, that health is not EU competence. And so that is something that I think is, is a, a difficulty for the commission in handling this, this uh, outbreak. Right. And as we speak, we're seeing border closings all around the European Union. And I think about three weeks ago, you started seeing international media, especially like write these articles. Oh, is this the end of Europe's uh, Schengen zone? And the answer was no, 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 no. That would be disproportionate, blah, blah, blah. But we're, we're finally starting to see it happen. Uh, and what about specifically here in Belgium, which is, of course, where a lot of our listeners are? I mean, that's a very complex political setup. How are they handling it? What's been the, the general commentary on how they're dealing with it? Because they don't have a regular government, of course, at the moment. It's a caretaker government. And they haven't been able to, to form a, a proper government, if you like, after the elections. Well, they've achieved the classic Belgian compromise. Um, in the end, uh, they have closed schools. They have closed bars and restaurants. But stores like that sell clothes or video games or whatever um, can still can still be open on weekdays, but not on weekends. Um, but, you know, Jillian just came back from lunch, actually, right before we're recording this. And she has discovered some interesting things about the availability of uh, takeout um, around the EU quarter. So restaurants are closed in the sense that you cannot eat at the location. However, you can go to a cafe and, and do takeaway. So this has not stopped cafes from, from putting out soup um, or, or whole buffets. Um, so as long as you don't physically eat it there, I guess you are in the clear. Right. So it doesn't matter that we're all touching the same server and breathing on each other's food. It's, it's takeaway. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, that sounds um, interesting, especially if people are, are sort of hanging around. Uh, one of the great things about a Brussels sandwich bar is to hang around and look at all the sandwiches extensively so you can decide which <laughs> one to have. Probably not a great idea to be in close proximity to people uh, doing that at the moment. But how busy is the EU quarter today, Gillian? Uh, Were many people in those cafes and sandwich bars? I was the only one. So I will say so far, it seems like uh, it's a, quite a ghost town, at least in the European quarter. But I also I live across the street from a park and that was quite uh, quite full, actually, even this morning. Yeah, I think parks are the new uh, cafes because it's where people can still go at the moment uh, and congregate, at least for now. Uh, and finally, maybe just a question on what sort of myths you're encountering. What sort of things are your friends, colleagues asking you? What things are you seeing on social media? Is there anything that we can address as a kind of uh, public service? Um, one of the most common things that I keep hearing is that there's going to be a vaccine soon. Um, and so if you see any media headlines saying that, that someone has discovered a vaccine, even though they maybe discovered something that could work in the future, there's still it's not coming onto the market for another year, year and a half in the earliest timeframes. It has to go undergo very lengthy and, and very costly clinical trials before it's actually authorized for people to use it. Uh, I had a friend triumphantly post that she had found 
a hand sanitizer at a gas station. And it's worth pointing out that there are different types of hand sanitizers, and most of them are antibacterial. And coronavirus is a virus. Those are different types of germs. Um, So antibacterial gel is not going to do you any good. You shouldn't even really use it at all because it just contributes to antimicrobial resistance. But anyway, you need the more expensive kind of antibacterial gel, which is at least 70% alcohol in order for it to protect you from the coronavirus. Okay, some good practical advice. Anything else? We've got plenty of opportunities uh, over the next few weeks and, and probably months, I think, to talk about this. But don't hold back if there's anything else we should talk about right now. You know, the reality is to fight this, People have to make a sacrifice, not for their own good, but for somebody else's good. And um, our societies are not really always well adjusted to that. Right. I guess we're going to see just how much that message gets across and whether people are willing to hear it. Uh, Sarah, Gillian, thanks very much. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again and again and again over the next few weeks or months. (laughs) (laughs) Looking forward to it. Stay well. Wash your hands. Good advice. Now, this public health crisis has also turned into an economic crisis, and it's hard to find an industry that's been hit harder than the airline industry. To talk us through what you can expect from air travel in the coming weeks or months, and how the whole sector is being affected, we have our aviation reporter, Saim Saeed. Hi, Saim. Hi, Andrew. Maybe just tell me where you are. How are you teleworking today? Well, I'm uh, on my kitchen dining table right now, um, as I expect many other people are today as well. Right, yep. I think we're all doing our own uh, different versions of of teleworking today. Um, Let's see how they work out over the long term. Anyway, you're our aviation specialist, and that's a sector that's been hugely affected by the coronavirus already. Can you just give us a sense of how much of an impact this has had on the sector? So there's been a radical, radical transformation in the airline industry uh, over the last uh, few weeks. So today, for example, Ryanair said they're cutting 80% of flights. Air France KLM said they're cutting between 70 to 90%. Smaller airlines like Lot, uh, which is the Polish national airline, is cancelling all flights. And uh, it's similar to SAS Scandinavian, which is also around 90%. But that, again, even the 10% is mostly focused on repatriating Danish and Swedish citizens that need to come back. So, I mean, airlines have shut down, essentially, in Europe. Right. And and what about the jobs impact? Uh, Huge. And all these different companies, I think, are handling it differently. But uh, if you're going to cut 90% of your services, then you kind of have to cut 90% of your payroll. Um, So whether that's ground handlers, whether that's cabin crew, pilots, um, air traffic controllers, pretty much everyone in the industry has had to stay home. Um, And given on the state of the country and the airline and how much money it has, either there's um, measures like uh, part-time work, so coming in for work for four hours as opposed to eight, um, but for some it's also just um, layoffs. And uh, it's a matter of time before we realize how permanent those layoffs are going to be. What are the airlines looking for then from from governments, from regulators? Is there a united position? Have they all banded together to ask national governments, the European Union to do particular things? Or, you know, what kind of help do they need or what kind of help do they think they need? What are they asking for? 
that's a very good question. Up until even two weeks ago, the airline industry was very much divided between the haves and the have-nots on what sort of part the government ought to play. Okay, what does that mean, the haves and have-nots? Well, I mean, so essentially you have five or six very big airlines that have about half of the EU's aviation market. So your Ryanair's, Lufthansa's, Air France, KLM, uh, EasyJet, and British Airways. And then you have smaller airlines like Flybe that just went out or Norwegian or smaller airlines like SAS or a lot that uh, have a smaller market and thus have, are, it's much harder for them to operate given all these other bigger airlines having all this money in all these planes. So they said, look, if the virus is going to mean that all these airlines that are struggling anyway are going to give out, then the government shouldn't be in a position to help them because they're not going under because of the virus. They're going under because they have a not very good model on operation. But the thing is that that stance has changed very, very quickly because it's the big airlines that are suffering pretty much as much as the smaller airlines over the last week or two. And so you have Lufthansa that's asking for help. Uh, you have Air France, KLM that's asking for help. Uh, you have a lot of other big airlines that people thought, okay, wouldn't be the ones going under that are also just going to their governments in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Austria, in France, going like, look, we need some help. Now, that help itself could be in the form of a tax deferral. It could be in the form of ensuring a line of credit is open so that they can continue borrowing money in the short term if they have to. Um, it could mean helping uh, the airlines pay their staff even if they're not working. Um, so what's happening now is that the transport ministers of the EU are going to meet uh, similar to how we're meeting right now on Wednesday. And they're going to discuss some of the measures that they're either taking individually or whether they can have a united front. For its part, Brussels has said that, look, if you're going to implement any sort of state aid measures, you're, we're going to give you, quote, maximum flexibility, unquote. And so it seems that the competition department in particular is planning to stay out of the way when it comes to what these governments are going to do to help their airlines. So the normal kind of competition rules would be set aside for now in terms of companies and how they're allowed to compete with each other, right? Right. And so even something, one of the more extreme cases is Alitalia, which has already gotten two rounds of aid from the Italian government, and both are currently being investigated by the commission. So there's not a lot of goodwill when it comes to that. But given that these circumstances are as crazy as they are, I think that it would it's in very, very different circumstances that a third possible package, if there is one, or even like a direct takeover, would be looked at differently. So so circumstances for pretty much the entire continent have changed and those normal rules um, uh, don't really apply anymore. So so we'll have to see what kind of measures these governments come up with. Is there any kind of precedent for this? If I think back, 9-11 was probably the last time you didn't have planes in the skies for days. Are there any lessons to draw from history of in terms of how to tackle this? This is totally uncharted territory, actually, because with both 9-11 and the financial crisis, uh, those, the, the other two sort of sustained periods where airlines had difficulty getting passengers to come on board, uh, there the, the were very, very different circumstances. With the, with the economic crisis, it was just that people couldn't afford to travel. So airlines were slashing prices. They were begging people to fly. The thing is that doesn't, that approach doesn't really work anymore because governments themselves don't recommend it. Health agencies don't recommend it. And we also don't know when it's actually going to be over. So it's not a question of whether people can afford to fly or whether it's safe to fly. The, the, the truth is that it isn't. And it's similar with 9-11 because 
in general, the airline industry wasn't malfunctioning. It was that people were afraid of flying for a while. So there's there's no precedent in that. There there seems to be genuine reasons for the airline industry to not be functioning. And you can also see that in the way the the industry is behaving. They haven't really slashed prices. They haven't really told people that, no, they should actually be flying at this moment. And what they're doing is just taking out all this capacity and all these seats and all these planes they have available because governments are telling them to do so. Um, and what's scarier is that there's there's also no end date. At no point can airlines actually go uh, and tell themselves that, look, this is a temporary thing and things are going to be back to normal uh, because they can tell themselves that, but they don't really know. OK, Saim, I think we'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much for your insight, your expertise and hope to see you in person again sometime before too long. <laughs> Just not sure Hopefully when that will be. Hopefully sooner rather than later. Thanks, yep. Andrew. Absolutely. Cheers, Saim. And that's it for this special edition of EU Confidential. We'll have our regular episode on Thursday in which we'll bring you the latest on the coronavirus and also talk about other things, hopefully, including taking a deep dive into the EU's climate law. Do let us know what you think of this episode. Send ideas and questions you'd like us to tackle in future. You can reach us at podcast at politico.eu or you can find myself and producer Christina Gonzalez very easily on social media. In the meantime, if you find yourself with spare time at home these days, feel free to explore our EU Confidential archive. We have more than 100 episodes for you to listen to. And if you don't want to miss a new episode, be sure to subscribe on your favourite listening platform. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.